Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin podcast. My name is Matt Brusky, and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action. And welcome to another week from Wisconsin. We have our full panel, although we're all not here in our recording studio, but Jorna Taylor is. And Jorna's a nonprofit consultant here in Wisconsin. Jorna, good to have you. Good morning. And from Washington, D.C., Robert Craig, our Executive Director here at Citizen Action, joins us. Robert. Uh, good morning, everyone. I'm at the Big Families USA Conference, which is the biggest annual convening of healthcare advocates. So, a lot of interesting things going on here, of course, given what uh, is underway at the Capitol and with the Trump administration on health care. Well, it's good to have you out there, and we'll be talking a little bit later in the podcast about health care. Robert's going to give us an update on the latest news as to what we think is happening. And before that, though, we are going to talk about some state politics, although it is uh, this first issue is a little federal angle, and that is Sean Duffy. Sean Duffy, Representative Sean Duffy from the great northwestern part of the state, has decided he will not run against Tammy Baldwin. Jorna, I know you're our chief elections watcher. Right. (laughs) Does this surprise you? I mean, there was a lot of discussion. People were, I mean, gearing up for Duffy. I mean, uh, people had already been talking about this was going to be a big race, Duffy versus Baldwin. You surprised? Um, well, in the Republican tradition, and I don't mean to make fun of religion, but I must stop for a moment Please and don't. ask God <laughs> and pray with my family before I answer this question. And my answer is, um, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm a little surprised about this, but uh, he doesn't want to get in the way of his wife's uh, rising star career as Rachel Campos Duffy as the spokeswoman for the Libre Initiative, the Koch administration as it may be. Um And, you know, frankly, let's be clear, he probably saw some polling numbers and some writing on the wall that he couldn't beat that liberal, what did he call her? A liberal some, some lesbian, probably. From Madison, Madison, liberal, (laughs) right, and then boom, you've got this. Awfulness. So, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what uh, swamp creature crawls out of their morass to run against Tammy, because we got to have someone good. Okay, before we go to Robert. I want you to dive just a little deeper on two key things you brought up as, you know, aside from the... the uh, My general snark. The, well, the college-level written uh, announcement uh, that one of their staffers wrote for this. You brought up the notion, one, that they may have some polling that shows he can't win, or two, the other piece, his wife, and the connects to the Coke ties. T- a little more about why you think all this ties in and, and, and plays in, since some of our listeners may not be fully aware of all this. Well... So Rachel Campos Duffy has been the spokeswoman slash, you know, sort of head of the Libre Initiative, which is the rights, the conservative rights answer to any sort of organizing around Latinx issues. And, you know, they've been making some headway up until their presidential candidate called Mexicans rapists and, you know, is going to make us pay for a wall. But um, I don't know that that I think that's a little bit more insider baseball for us sort of politicos to talk about. I don't know that people make that direct correlation. Um, But it'll be interesting as this administration continues to topple in on itself, what sort of role these key spokespeople outside of the administration will have. And, you know, look, like I'm a person that came out of political campaigns. And I can tell you as much as listeners may not like to hear this, we do everything based on polling numbers. And if the numbers were stellar for Duffy to be in this race and to win it, you bet your ass that he was going to stay in. You know, the other thing there could be is there could be some negative opposition research on him. And he found out that, you know, something was going to come out that the general public didn't wasn't going to react to well or a primary electorate, which is a 
much more singular focused entity than a general electorate. Um, I don't I don't know, but I really would be surprised if it didn't have something to do with lagging poll numbers. Robert, I know you're in D.C., but news travels uh, very quickly through the interwebs. Your thoughts on this? Uh, we don't know. We had rumors that he was their chosen candidate, but, you know, the uh, modern Republican Party is very well organized. Maybe he wasn't. Maybe they have another candidate. Or maybe some of the things Jordan is mentioning about polling numbers, though he hasn't really campaigned yet, so it wouldn't be expected to have much name recognition, would have the money to get it or other skeletons in the closet, all could be possibilities, but they're also, we don't know what chalking is going on and whether this is a great disappointment and whether they have no candidate at the moment or whether there was another candidate edging him out quietly that we'll soon hear about. I think these are all very good points. I, you know, one thing that I want to remind our listeners as we're heading, starting, people are starting to think about 2018 is, uh, Tammy Baldwin, when she first announced that she was going to run, I think there was some hand-wringing on the left and in Democratic circles that she couldn't win because she was all those things Jorna mentioned, uh, uh, out lesbian, from Madison, liberal, uh, couldn't win, right? Or it was going to be really hard. And, and Tammy did extraordinarily well and, and actually cleaned the clock of Tommy Thompson. Um, so it's interesting that here we are now, six years later, I guess five years later, and she's kind of this fairly formidable <laughs> opponent where, where this uh, rising superstar, Sean Duffy, you know, who everyone assumed was going to run, has, is taking a second look and certainly has at least made political calculations that it's a gamble he's not willing to take. So while I think everything you mentioned, Robert, is true, we ought not be celebrating that somehow there may not be another candidate. And, uh, but it's also a reminder to us as we look forward and look towards candidates in 2018 that we should not limit ourselves to a very narrow range of supposedly who can and who can't win and that we ought to really be focusing on what are the kind of values, what are the kind of um, things we need to be laying out as an agenda for what uh, progressive leadership uh, would look like, say, for a governor. Um, And so I think that's kind of an interesting side aspect of this. But uh, certainly we're going to continue to watch this race. Sure. On this, of course, it's usually assumed that uh, an off-year election is bad for a Democrat, and therefore Tammy would be highly vulnerable in 2018, and that may still turn out to be the case. But another factor here is is that it's going to be the first re-elect, not of Hillary Clinton, but Donald Trump. And an off-year election might be bad, and if they're, they they may even in Buffy making projections that this is going to be an awful year for Republicans to run, and there's going to be a backlash against Trump and Republican control. So that's something to look at too, especially if they have trouble finding um, a first-tier candidate to challenge Tammy. That'll tell you what their assessment is of 2018. Well, 2018, not not too far around the corner. Again, we're going to continue <laughs> continue wow, to watch this. Started it already. <laughs> already. Before we get to 2018, though, we have to talk about 2017 spring elections. So our primary election is just next Tuesday, February 21st. So the big election is the Department of Public Instruction Superintendent. And we have news to announce. <laughs> Obviously, we've already mentioned that there will be no Supreme Court contests since there is no progressive can- candidate running, which is... <laughs> Of course, a great disappointment, but uh, we do have Tony Evers and Citizen Action uh, Board last week announced its endorsement of Tony Evers. Uh, he is clearly 
the only candidate in this race who who clearly stands on the side of public education and figuring out how do we create a 21st century public education system for all children. Uh, but geez, it didn't take long. We have got to talk about, and Jordan, I'm going to look to you first for this. Oh the news that broke yesterday, late Wednesday, about the two candidates challenging Tony Evers. We had briefly mentioned John Humphreys. I don't think we even had the privilege of talking about the other candidate in this race. Uh, his name is Lowell Holtz. Uh, Jorna, these two apparently they made a, a, a nice deal with each other, potentially. Uh, it's fascinating. So I had the privilege of meeting Mr. Holtz uh, when he inadvertently wandered into a fundraiser that I was uh, at for a Democratic candidate before the election this year. And he was boasting of his 100% school choice approval rating from uh, Scott Jensen. And I just wanted to say, you're, you're, you're in the wrong crowd yeah. here, my friend. <laughs> he knew you well. Um, so, so his opposition research was, was good. Uh, look, I mean, this pay-for-play, uh, if you get out, I'll give you a $150,000 job, it was just trying to get his opponent out of the race. So explain that. We may have a few listeners who didn't actually hear that these guys actually sat down and cut a deal or tried to cut a deal so that if one of them drops out, the other one, if they win, would actually give the other a job? Is that For, for $150,000, <laughs> a position within DPI, $150,000, full benefits, and here's the kicker. I'm willing to do it. Just I want the Republican candidates to know I'm willing to do this. For a driver. It would have a driver. <laughs> a driver. Oh, wow. This is amazing. Um, I don't have a driver. Robert, do you have a driver? Uh, no, I'm trying to drive less, actually, uh, to save the planet, but... The other element that, uh, of this, which apparently is not illegal, uh, which is fascinating, you can't give more, you can't buy a cup of coffee for a legislator, but you can apparently offer people jobs uh, it, it, uh, in order to leave a race where you have the power to give them the job afterwards. But the other shocking thing in the proposal, and they both sent in different versions of the written proposals to the press, and the press can't tell which one is authentic. There are some differences. Uh, but the person would also have been given full control of the urban school districts in uh, Wisconsin, Milwaukee, Madison, Racine. Apparently, Green Bay was negotiable. And, uh, and uh, Holtz talked about really breaking up Milwaukee, the ability to break up the districts, to sack the school boards. I don't think any of that is actually within the DPI superintendent's power, actually, that I know of. But this is also part of the deal. The $150,000 deal with the driver also involves authoritarian control over, uh, over the major urban school districts in the state. Well, which is amazing, right? First of all, well, you bring up, do they even have the authority to do this? But yeah, the guy who drops out and gets the driver and the other job, he'll be in charge of all these school districts that probably total more than half of the state's population. That seems kind of odd that the uh, the loser who drops out uh, gets that job. But of course, it's extraordinarily a disturbing lot of color, that this a yeah. lot of students of color and families of color authoritarian control to some right-wing white guy who has, you know, ridiculous notions about about schools and why they why they will, may or may not be succeeding. That has nothing to do with economic challenges, poverty, broken homes, what the kids are going through, anything like that. Just just what they need is to have um, a father figure. I put that in quotes with great sarcasm, like that, in charge of their of their futures and their education. Yeah, well, obviously this proposal is preposterous, and it's great that it got 
got the public uh, got light on it, and I assume this is uh, hopefully very damaging to both of them. But uh, the only way it's damaging is if people get out and vote. And we want to remind people again, Tuesday is the primary election. And because there are three candidates, we can do the math. That means there is a primary for DPI. And it's important that we get out and make sure Tony uh, has a good uh, vote total uh, in the primary election. Jorna? Um, Matt, do you remember when doing the maths was the biggest challenge our president had? Yes, yes. (laughs) Is our children learning? (laughs) Quite a few more challenges these days, and we will get back to federal issues a little bit later uh, in the podcast. But beyond uh, DPI, there are also in an, you know throughout the state a number of local elections where I'm sure you have uh, primaries. So please, folks, spend some time this weekend. Take a little uh, dive into your local election. See who's running. A lot of judge races, a lot of local uh, municipality races, school board races. Uh, in communities. It is very important you get out and vote. Uh, These primary elections are super important. So uh, get out there and vote. And of course, if you're hearing this Friday, most early voting still open today. So get out and you can vote early today. Uh, But then again on Tuesday. So and of course, again, Citizen Action supporting Tony Evers. Um, With that, though, um, we need to talk about some state-level issues before we turn back to the train wreck of our our nation. Um, We mentioned last week, we talked, or was it, no, two weeks ago? Last week? Can't remember. Two weeks ago, I think we had Gordon Hintz on, and we went deep dive into talking about uh, the Man-Egg tax credit, and it's really, quite frankly, a, a tax loophole. Um, And Gordon Hintz has been taking a, a major lead in fighting this loophole. Well, this week... Robert, I'm going to ask you to lead on this. We we heard from Governor Walker. He announced apparently uh, that he found that there was double dipping going on with the Man-Ag tax credit and other tax credits that uh, folks can get and apparently is costing the state millions of dollars. Your thoughts? Well, they found a little extra money, uh, but, you know, the idea and what the, the double dip was is that the companies were both writing off taxes they paid in other states and then writing off it again in the Man-Ag tax credit. So they're getting about freeing up about $9 million by not allowing them to count it twice. But none of this should surprise us because of the purpose of the manufacturing agriculture tax credit was never to create jobs. It's a huge giveaway. And if you're giving away things to power brokers like Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce that were key to your election and poured millions um, into your election, then uh, why not give them more? If you're going to give them an open bar and, uh, and hors d'oeuvres, why not throw a dessert? And so none of this should surprise us, and none of this will really surprise the public because the public, by large numbers, thinks the tax system is rigged in favor of people with the power to manipulate it in Madison, and this is just more evidence of that. And so it'll look a little bit like Walker's, like, big new investments in education. He's just going to cut back a little bit on his own corruption, but he's still giving $1.4 billion away in this tax credit where you can outsource jobs and, uh, and still get it and, and reduce jobs and still get it. Um, in the next, in the next uh, two budgets, is $1.4 billion, according to the numbers. Uh, Representative Gordon Hintz uh, got the LFB lately fiscal bureau to release a couple weeks back. Well, Gordon, I mean, Gordon accurately raises the point, right? Like, okay, great. I'm glad you found this, but really, what the hell took so long? And quite frankly, they prop- may have already known about this. It just shows, Robert, as you said, we have a real problem here. We have a completely rudderless 
plan for economic development in this state between what the Walker administration is doing, what the Republicans are doing, and Weed Act, right? It's not They're, what it was for. That's my point. It was never for that. That's lip service. Correct. But the reality is, you know, if we're going to talk about what we as progressives and what Democrats ought to be doing, right, and how they ought to be responding to this, they really need to be focusing not necessarily just on the details, although great for Gordon for doing that, but really, again, this further points out that we have a complete ad hoc approach to our development. We don't really have any long-term strategy that puts a priority on, you know, say, doing things like increasing the amount of jobs that actually pay a living wage, closing, you know, racial disparity gaps. These are the kind of things that actually would set out the kind of goals that would dictate policies that would be fundamentally different than, quote, this giveaway. And so hopefully we can have uh, Democrats and other progressives get out and really use this as an opportunity to talk about that kind of vision for what we'd like to see. So, Robert and Jorna, there's another exciting news that went around the Capitol, the state Capitol this week, and uh, related to a topic we have spent time talking about last week, and that is redistricting. We had Sachin Chetta on to talk about the lawsuit, and uh, uh, Senator Dave Hansen to talk about his legislation to get uh, to 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 create fairer way of redistricting. Well, the and and we had mentioned that the Republicans had hired some high-priced lawyers to help with the recount or excuse me, to help with uh, their redistricting efforts. I'm mixing their problems. Uh, anyways, and we found out this week it's going to cost another $150,000 for these lawyers. 175, thank you, Jorna, to fight this. I mean, geez, unbelievable waste of money around this redistricting. Yeah, but what's 175 when you've already spent $2 million? $2 million, right, to fight something that clearly is uh, uh, intended to do one thing, create uh, disproportionate representation for Republicans. Well, of course, I mean, we can't lose our sense of outrage about this. They are using public dollars, the $2 million originally, and now the $175,000 additional for their own political purposes. This isn't a, a district set up that was designed for the public interest. It was designed for them to win elections. You'd think since they have unlimited dark money in the unregulated campaign finance system conservatives have created, they could at least use that money to pay for it. But no, well, we get insult added to injury. And I love in this the $100,000 flat fee uh, for the famous lawyer to write the friend of the court brief if it ever goes to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, that's a that's a very nice annual salary. I wonder how long it takes this guy to write the friend of the court brief, or whether he has a template already set up. But um, it's just amazing that they they should be able, there should at least be you would think some sort of public rate that these lawyers have to accept in order to do public business. Uh, maybe we could limit. Maybe we could do something like that. Uh, we can't pay them any more than ten uh, than ten times what the average worker makes per hour. How about that? Well, Robert, these lawyers are very, very good. They're worth it. Well, you know, by the way, if they lose, <laughs> ah, it shows what a what a good use of resources that was. Well, we're going to continue to track this. Obviously, as you said, Robert, it's outrageous that this uh, money would be uh, used. And we're, as Jorna pointed out, already over, well over $2 million in expenditures. Pasha, another 175 <laughs> Exactly. So uh, one other final thing uh, at the state level that we wanted to make sure our listeners were aware of. Uh, we, we talked about the recount that happened here in the state that managed to go actually quite smoothly, uh, was all paid for, uh, extra revenue coming into clerk's offices to hire people, conduct a recount that apparently showed us kind of what a lot of us knew, that 
there weren't major problems, but there certainly are irregularities within our, our system. But for the most part, the thing went smoothly, didn't hold up anything. Um, good use of democracy when there was a real question that might actually put uh, uh, some people questioning the legitimacy of the actual mechanics of counting the election. Ugh. And so here we go. Right away, the Republicans now are coming out with a bill to change the recount law that would make it extraordinarily difficult for anyone other than the actual candidate who loses by uh, within 1% of the winner can only request a recount. Jorna? Hashtag thanks, Jill Stein. (laughs) I mean, look, you know me and I, I like to believe in the actual integrity of our elections. And I know there are those out there that question them. Uh, But for the most part, the issues that we found are things that we can work with our local election officials to fix. And and that's great. Uh, You know, unfortunately, this just leads to a place where independent, nonpartisan entities have no ability to challenge the results when they know that there have been egregious violations of election law or um, the process of enacting the franchise. So, um, God, hashtag thanks, Jill Stein. That's all I have to say about this. It's annoying. So, Robert, you might have a slightly different take on this. I'd be curious to hear it. No, this is classically bad legislation with junking up the statute books with what they don't like about the previous uh, election cycle. Next election cycle, they'll want to recount. They can't have it. They'll change the law back uh, to something else. Um, and they also don't like uh, anyone being able to do this. In other words, Jill Stein getting to decide whether there's a recount or she can raise the money is offensive to them. So maybe they can amend the bill just to say that Scott Walker decides when there are recounts and when there aren't and who pays for them. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, the, the thing that I think is, shows how ridiculous this is, the notion that LeMayhew is very concerned that somehow the biggest concern here is that our electoral votes won't be finalized on time, right? As if that is anything, you know, as opposed to actually making sure we get it right. And again, I go back to... The fact that they were. (laughs) It's a a solution without a problem. Exactly. Well, that was the whole point. Like, we actually did it. Uh, It was done very close to the deadline, right? The the recount didn't happen right away because some of this stuff was raised, you know, weeks into after the election, uh, and still managed to get it, and and so they want to get rid of it. It just it's it's just unbelievable. I I shouldn't say that it's believable, but just you know, come on. And by the way, I I, I do want to remind everyone this was all paid for, right? Like this didn't it didn't cost anybody anything. If anything, it was additional revenue coming in uh, uh, for this. So nonetheless, it shall happen. They have decreed. So before we um end this week, we got to talk some more about some, some, some stuff at the federal level, particularly uh, the Affordable Health Care Act. Um, Robert, you are in D.C. at this health care conference. Uh, there has been a lot of talk this week that, well, one, that the Freedom Caucus, so the right wing of the uh, Republican Party, has been blistering uh, Mr. Paul Ryan around their potential proposals around the Affordable Care Act, and they're really pressuring Ryan and the Republicans to repeal functionally with no replacement and uh, just do what they did, uh, essentially the bill that they had in 2015. And so there's been um, some real uh, disagreements within the House Caucus. I it is my understanding you have some information about what is likely to happen a part of that process, which uh, sounds like it would be really important for our listeners to hear. 
Yeah, and there's a lot of discussion here at the Families USA conference. And in fact, I had a long talk with a name that uh, would be familiar to our listeners, uh, not the person himself, but Craig Obi, who is uh, David Obi's son, who is uh, Deputy Executive Director of Families USA, tracking this closely. And um, they are going to, this is the House caucus, not the Senate, uh, so Ryan's caucus, have a briefing um, of members, a closed-door briefing today, that is Thursday, um, about uh, what the parameters of their replacement plan might be. But it's going to, and this is partly under pressure from the Freedom Caucus, uh, but it's going to be very general, uh, I understand, because they're about to go home for recess. And, of course, many of them are afraid to hold town hall meetings, which, uh, including uh, on the Senate side, Senator Johnson. Uh, so they don't want any fodder out there that could be used against them during the recess. So this will be very general and probably far too much to have made of it because there is no agreement. They don't have a replacement right now because uh, they philosophically are against keeping the money. They want to give back uh, huge tax breaks to rich people. They don't want to use government to provide health care coverage. And so, but they promised uh, uh, universal coverage and everyone will be covered. And one of the interesting things that we learned yesterday is Jeff Guerin, who's a very well-known pollster, gave us a briefing. And he says that uh, they, the, the number of people who think it's the federal government's role um, to guarantee everyone has health care coverage has skyrocketed. And it's now 70 percent of the electorate, which is an unheard of number, who believe that. And this is partly because Republicans are articulating this. And in fact, the largest increase in people who believe that's the government's role to do this is Trump voters who make $70,000 or less in income. So they've managed in their own base to support, to promote a progressive value, which they cannot achieve. Uh, so it looks like that they have a real problem here and that they have not, they're not even in, in remotely close to an agreement on how they're going to fix it. The other thing, though, they may have agreement on, which is scary, and I want listeners to understand this very clearly, is, is that they definitely want to raid Medicaid. And they want to, and they want to go to a block grant system or something as bad a per capita cap system, which would have the same kind of impact. And they're talking about taking trillions out of Medicaid, dumping it onto the states who won't be able to, who, and but giving them flexibility in return, which polls well. So people think that sounds good, but flexibility means cuts, quite frankly. And uh, there are 74 million people on Medicaid, and an interesting number, 45% of American kids uh, get their health care from Medicaid. So think about that. 45, 45% of all kids are on Medicaid, and they're going to start uh, dismantling it. And I'm not even getting into long-term care for seniors and people with disabilities, which is also funded by Medicaid. So that is a huge threat, and there's a lot less pressure on that right now than there is on ACA, partly because they haven't started the process, and partly because this block granting thing is, sounds fine. It's like, oh, give the, uh, a bundle of money to the states, and then the states uh, are closer to the people, and they decide. But they're going to get less money, and they'll be rationed down each and every year. And it's really just a way to massively cut the program and remove the federal commitment to guarantee that everyone who is, who is very low income, and especially kids or seniors, people with disabilities, have somewhere to get, go to get health care or long-term care. Well, Robert, this split within the Republican Party, though, it, it seems like— They've been trying to paper it over for a while, but it's it's going to come to a head on here. I don't you I don't see how they're going to be able to square all of this. It, it you know you you talked about it in your op ed the bait and switch, but um, this this just looks like a potential train wreck for them. You mentioned Ron Johnson is not holding town halls, which is a big deal. 
Um, there are town halls going on all over the country, in, in, including this state. Congressman Sensenbrenner has had multiple town halls. Uh, and certainly those have been contentious. Uh, but he's had those town halls. And uh, Ron Johnson is not. And I think we need to have our listeners continue to call Ron Johnson's office and put pressure on him to have town halls. This is an incredibly important issue in the notion that he's going to not have them because he says he wants to have civil debate. What does that mean? That's ridiculous. Um, so the pollster I mentioned, Jeff Guerin, thinks that the best way to fight back on ACA is to keep pressing for the plan and ask questions about what is or is not in the plan. And that's been very effective in the town halls that have happened across the country. Uh, Republican staffers and Republican members of Congress can't really answer questions such as, are you going to guarantee that no one can ever be denied coverage because they have a health condition? Or, or that women are charged more than men, or are there lifetime limits or annual limits, or are there huge uh, elements of medical care that can be excluded from policies, et cetera, et cetera. So people can keep asking those questions and trying to, and then tell us if you get an answer. If you get an answer from a staffer for, for Senator Johnson, Representative Duffy, Representative Gallagher, Representative Sensenbrenner, uh, House Speaker Ryan, let us know what they're saying. We're going to be comparing notes and making it clear what statements they've made. And uh, we're going to be working, we're talking to a lot of people here, Kevin Kane and I are, on a, a set of questions for people to ask and to, in every way we possibly can and to document the answers to show, of course, that they plan to do none of the things they're promising. But uh, if they want to guarantee that everyone will have affordable health coverage no matter what and answer all these questions in the affirmative, that would be great. It's just not going to happen. Well, I, I feel like this is a little bit for Senator Johnson, like the TPP. It's a lot of reading and things to understand here that he's never going to do. You know, th this isn't surprising that he is not going to have town halls. Uh, at least it doesn't surprise me, having attended a bunch of them during the original health care debate. And people get upset and passionate, and they're only going to get more upset and passionate about their health care being taken away from them. I certainly... If Gwen Moore, Congresswoman Moore, had a town hall as my representative, I would go there and say, I know that you're doing everything you can to try and fight to save my health care. So, you know, and thank you. So I just think that it's it's disappointing that this is democracy in action. And the next thing we know that his phones probably won't be working to take your calls anyway. So <laughs> so go sit in his office. Yeah. Robert, you mentioned uh, the having people ask questions, too, about like what's going to be included. It's There was a really uh, great article where Sensenbrenner couldn't answer that, and it led the Journal Sentinel story where he basically had to admit when this woman asked, like, what's going to happen to her kid who now has coverage, and he said, I don't know, I can't answer that, right? That is an incredibly powerful uh, thing, and we need to get more of those kinds of statements because that speaks to the fact that they don't know and ultimately, they are repealing uh, and taking away health care from 30 million people with no plan. So, folks, keep those calls coming in, particularly into Senator Johnson's office, both on the Affordable Care Act, but also this guy needs to schedule some public hearings while he's away on, or while he's back here in the state. Yeah, one other quick thing on health care from the conference. Um, uh, so far, from the big conference, there was a pre-conference yesterday, uh, the new senator from Maryland, uh, Chris Van Hollen, is, gave a really good speech. He knows his stuff, so I would tell listeners that to watch him. Um, but then Al Franken gave 
you know, the classic long Al Franken speech that was uh, slow in, in, in cadence, uh, but with some very good wry humor. He mentioned the medical loss ratio at one point, which most of our listeners know what that is. That's that, that uh, insurers have to pay 85% of the premium for actual medical care. Well, he mentions the medical loss ratio and gets a sudden ovation. And so then Franken, of course, cracks. That this is the only place I'll ever speak where I get a standing ov. I get I get an applause line for medical loss ratio. Yeah, it's, uh, other than coming and speaking to the organizing cooperative, right? That they would understand. Yeah. So, we, <laughs> so uh, before we uh, go here, I do want to mention, speaking of our organizing cooperatives, that we have uh, a drive that for a new cooperative in central Wisconsin, north central Wisconsin, which is anything from Rhinelander down to the Rapids area. Uh, Joel Lewis, our organizer, is leading that effort. There are five days left as of today. I guess if you listen to this on Friday, it'll be four days left of that drive officially. And we want to encourage any of our listeners who live in the central part of the state to really consider joining our cooperative. You can reach out to Joel Lewis at joel.lewis at citizenactionwi.org. If you're interested in more information, go on our website. We have plenty of information there about the cooperatives. But please join that cooperative. It's already over 90% to its goal. We expect it to make it, which means we, uh, we will have uh, around 250 people uh, supporting that cooperative up there. It's very exciting. So, uh, folks, please consider doing that. Ah, but before we go, um, Jorna, what are you doing this weekend? It's going to be in the 50s, yeah. so I'm going to be out playing with everybody's favorite horses, George and Reno. Yes. Because... Are you taking them outdoors this weekend? I may. Yeah, I nice. may go try and get them stuck in a mud puddle somewhere. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Robert, are you uh, going to still be in D.C. this weekend, or are you going to get to partake of our close to 60-degree temperatures? I will be in D.C. till Sunday night. I guess uh, I should be calling for an investigation into... Uh, the Trump campaign's Russia ties and joining in and saying, what did the president know? When did he know it? So just I'd make some reference to the bizarre things going on at the national level we didn't mention. But, yeah, I'm still in D.C., so I'm at least in proximity to the craziness. We're a couple blocks from the uh, Capitol, uh, the hotel we're at. Yeah, no, uh, uh, obviously talking about Trump uh, was on our list, but we are certainly ran out of time absolutely insane. It's pretty clear, Robert. He knew a long time ago about the problems and seemed to be okay with it until the leak happened. But for another day... The failing, the failing Washington Post and New York Times. Ah, yes. Yes. Sad. That's Fake news. Told us yesterday. And I like the briefings where he only takes questions from right-wing fake media. That's uh, <laughs> also fascinating. Yes. <laughs> So anyways, yes, it's a gorgeous weekend, and I want to encourage folks to get out and help Tony Evers get elected. They'll be canvassing opportunities, phone banking throughout the state. You can certainly go on Tony Evers' website. There is. You can also do phone banking from your home. They can set that up if you go check that out on the site. want to encourage people to do that. Here in Milwaukee, we will be working and knocking doors on Saturday, uh, both for Tony Evers and also for two of our cooperative members running for school board, both uh, Tony Baez and Larry Miller. And we're meeting at the Milwaukee Teachers Education Association at 930. Although that will be open, you can come by until 4 o'clock. 
to go out and make calls, knock doors uh, to help uh, get folks out this primary election. So I'll be doing that on Saturday morning. Uh, tomorrow I'm actually off, or I guess I should say Friday. Uh, my son is racing in Flat Out Friday, which is at the BMO Harris Pavilion. I hope folks who uh, want to do something different and fun on the weekend can get out and do that. Uh, it starts at uh, 7 p.m. Friday night in Milwaukee, indoor motorcycle racing. So I will be doing that on Saturday. With that, we want to thank Brian Wilbridge, our producer who makes the podcast happen every weekend. Thank you, Brian. And we will see everybody next week here at the Battleground Wisconsin.